let's stand together. I want to call us to worship from Psalm 33, 1 through 3. It says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befit the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Let's worship God this morning. All right, I want to welcome everyone. I want to welcome everyone 
here this morning. And we are thankful in this season to be with the body of Christ today, the people that belong to Jesus, the people that Jesus has ransomed and redeemed out of this present evil age, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the scriptures teach us that the spirit of Jesus is with us today, that we're not alone as we gather together in his name, that Christ dwells in the midst of his temple, the church, the people of God. And I want to encourage you this morning that no matter what you have going on in your life right now, 9 a.m. this morning, 9.15, sorry, uh, 9.15 this morning, that we are gathering together today for God's glory, to bring God glory and honor and praise. And we are also gathered together for our good. Those two things always go together, his glory and our good. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn really quickly to Luke chapter 10. And I want to encourage us as we continue in this time of worship. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Let's read this paragraph together. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village... And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so I want us to take note and be encouraged This morning that Jesus knows that often we are just like Mary. Often the Lord Jesus could look at each of us and say these words that we read in verse 41. You are anxious and troubled about many things. You are anxious and troubled about many things. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know The temptation to drag these anxieties into corporate worship. Just like this, this morning. That we are here in a time marked off for Jesus Christ. For the the corporate worship of Jesus Christ. For the preached word of God. But you know the battle. That we drag in worldly troubles. That we drag in our anxieties about many things. And that can even be good things or Uh, As trivial as a mental to-do list, dragging it into corporate worship this, this morning. And I want you to hear this encouragement from Jesus in verse 42, where he responds to Martha. And he says this, but one thing is necessary. So Jesus knows us. He knows our temptations. He knows that we are tempted to be anxious and troubled about many things. But Jesus says this. But one of those things is necessary. And I want you to be encouraged by that this morning. That God's word says one thing 
is necessary. Not all the other things that you say, yeah, but, but what about this? No, God's word says one thing is necessary in our life right now. And he says, Mary has chosen the good portion. And if you go back to verse 39, what did Mary choose to do? Mary chose to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching. And I want to encourage you this morning to choose the good portion as we head into corporate worship together. That you would push all the worldly troubles out of your mind this morning. And that you would choose the good portion to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his word. Corporate worship is a great privilege. Okay, Jesus is not going to be preaching bodily to us today. But as the word of God is faithfully preached, we get this privilege as his people, as the church of Jesus Christ, to sit under his word, to sit at, as though it were at Jesus' feet and listen to his teaching. And so I want to encourage you again this morning, choose the good portion. Don't let this, this service this morning pass you by in vain with being anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary, and that's to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his teaching. I'm going to pray for us, and I ask that you join me now. Let's pray together. Let's call upon the Lord. Lord, we are gathered together this morning in Jesus' name. And Lord, we come today clinging to his righteousness this morning, Lord, and not our own. God, remind us of that even now. We come in Jesus' name. We do not come to you in our own name. Lord, we have become unclean, your word says. And all of our righteous deeds have become as a polluted garment. Lord, we are sinners this day. We don't come in our own name. We come in Jesus' name. Lord, we are a sinful people. Lord, even our tears of repentance must be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are sinners. And we come in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you this morning for the gospel of grace and for the garments of righteousness that you have freely given to all who trust in your son Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning to believe your word, to believe your gospel promises to us, Lord, of, what, of who you have declared us to be in Christ. Lord Jesus, you have said that we are already clean because of the word that you have spoken to us. Lord, help us to believe it today, that we are already washed, that we are already clean, that we are already forgiven. That we have already been declared righteous in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, you have loved us, your church. You have loved us through the gospel with an everlasting love. Lord, you never started loving us. And you'll never stop loving us in Jesus Christ. You have loved us with an everlasting love. And so, Lord, we come today with nowhere else to go, Lord. And we give those words back to you, God, that we have nowhere else to go, for you have the words of eternal life. 
And so we come to you this morning, our great God and our Savior, and we want to worship at your feet. We want to give you glory and honor and praise, for you have the words of eternal life. Lord, in view of your love for us, your great mercy, Lord, we ask for help today to come to you open-handed, without hypocrisy, wholeheartedly, Lord, as living sacrifices, Lord. Help us to present ourselves to you, our great God and our great King. And Lord, we ask for grace this morning to hold nothing back from you, our God, for you are worthy of our all. Lord, we bring our gifts to you this morning, our labor for you this morning. And Lord, we want to come to you like that little boy came to you, Lord Jesus, with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. We want to come to you like that, Lord. We want to bring our insufficient resources to you. And we know it's not enough, Lord. Our abilities are so small to meet the spiritual needs all around us, in our families, in our workplaces, in the city that you've caused us to dwell in, among the nations, Lord. Our abilities are so small. Lord, we ask that our little would be made sufficient, that our little would be made a lot, Lord Jesus, as you multiplied in your in your hands, Lord, as you multiplied that bread and you took that little boy's lunch and you fed multitudes, thousands upon thousands, Lord, we come to you as a weak people, a needy people, and Lord, we want to come to you in faith this morning and, and ask to be used by you, Lord, that lost souls would eat the bread of life through the ministry of every member of this church, Lord. Work mightily in the midst of your people. Lord, we ask that doors would be open for the gospel for the members of this church. Lord, we ask that you would embolden us to speak the gospel, to speak the name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would use us for your glory to bring prodigals, lost sons back home, Lord. Lord, multiply our resources and make them sufficient to glorify your name. Lord, we want to pray for our nation. We thank you for this holiday that you gave us to reflect on our nation yesterday, Lord. And God, we want to pray for our nation today. Lord, we ask that you would turn our hearts to you and we will be turned, Lord. The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and you turn it wherever you will. Lord, we, we proclaim that the heart of America is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and you turn it wherever you will. Lord, we ask that you would turn our hearts to you. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be poured out on dry ground, on a thirsty land, Lord, we ask for an outpouring of your spirit in our nation, a work of power, a work of grace. Lord, we ask that you would glorify your name through the preaching of the gospel in our nation. 
Lord, we ask that you would visit us from on high and that you would have mercy upon our land. Lord, we pray for weary saints this morning, that you would be their strength, that you would be their shepherd, that you would meet their needs, Lord, and that their souls would not be found wanting. Lord, we want to pray, especially this morning, for our brother J.C. Hyatt, who was recently diagnosed with COVID-19. Lord, we thank you for the mild case so far that you've given our brother. And we ask, Lord, that you would heal him, that you would strengthen our brother, Lord, that you would heal his body, and that you would protect his wife, Haley. Lord, we want to pray for all the, all the saints who are gathered, Lord, the whole church, God, that you would be our strength and our confidence and our shield in this pandemic season. And Lord, we ask that you would draw near to us now as we draw near to you and worship your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll stand together and worship the Lord.
For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the Yeah. 
Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. That the Of your 
Can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me in the back? Higher? Turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17. And I want to talk about a greater reality. If you have a handout and you like to fill in the blanks, do so. If you don't, please lay that aside and do not let it distract you. And just hear God's word. Before we read the text, I want to give you just a little image in your mind to try to illustrate this concept of a greater reality. Hopefully this will work. Can you see that flame in the back? If we were to turn out all the lights in here, that would be really bright. It would light up the whole room. It would be intense. But if we went outside at high noon, you could barely see it. That wouldn't, that wouldn't change the heat or the intensity of this reality, but it would be overpowered by far, far, far greater reality. And I want you to see that about our existence, that there are, there are two realities going on right now. There are two simultaneous realities, and one is far, far greater. There is the, the seen, and there's the unseen. There's the temporal, and there's the eternal. There's the now, and there's the not yet. And the greater reality is that our citizenship is in heaven. And here we are on 4th of July weekend, and I want to celebrate this greater reality. Now, just like that flame, it doesn't mean that what's going on right now is not hot and intense, but there is a greater reality, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to magnify that today. We are strangers and exiles in this world. We are aliens in America. Our citizenship is in heaven. I hope you believe that. I hope it's true about you, that your citizenship is in heaven. Let's read this paragraph that says these great words in Philippians 3, verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly Things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things 
to himself. And there's the truth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Followers of Christ are citizens of another world. The Bible calls us strangers and exiles and sojourners and aliens on earth. Have you ever thought of yourself as that, as an alien on earth? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He said of you, he said of his disciples that they are not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. You are not of this world, he says. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are citizens of another world. We are citizens of heaven. How did we get that way? We are citizens of heaven by the blood of his cross. This is how Paul, and by the way, keep your Bible open. It's just four chapters here, but we're going to be dancing all around. Paul starts out this by giving thanks to God for the Philippians. He says God began a good work in them. He's going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. But guess what? God saved the Philippians just like he saved you and me. See, the Lord opened my heart just like he did Lydia's. Did he do that for you? The Lord struck fear in my heart and caused me to call out to his name for salvation just like that jailer did. Did he do that for you? God has caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection in Christ. He has called me out of darkness just like Peter said. Has he done that for you? God himself qualified me. He delivered me from the domain of darkness. He transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. In him, I have forgiveness. I'm redeemed from this world. How about you? Is your citizenship in heaven, if it is, this is how? Through Christ. Through the blood of his cross. You see, we've got this greater reality. Greater reality. We are citizens of heaven. Now, what's the application to this truth? Paul never gives truth without application. We are citizens of heaven, therefore we should behave like citizens of heaven. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. You see, Paul is contrasting two citizenships here. He's got two citizenships here. He's got the citizens of earth and he's got the citizens of heaven. Look at the first word in verse 20, but. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. But the people he just talked about, theirs isn't. Their citizenship is not heaven. Their citizenship is earth. Their minds are set on earthly things, he says. And this just goes along with what the Bible teaches. There are only two groups of people. The wicked and the righteous. The goats and the sheep. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Citizens of earth or citizens of heaven. And Paul is calling all citizens of heaven to walk a certain way. We walk according to these right examples he's given us in Scripture. 
Paul is calling for right imitation. Look at verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me, he says. Or you can keep your eyes on some others who walk according to the same example that you have in us. It's not the first time Paul says this. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he says, imitate others. He's going to show us here that we need to imitate Timothy and Epaphroditus and, 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 and others, and especially Jesus. But do not imitate the world. Do not imitate the enemies of the cross, he says. Paul is calling us to behave as citizens of heaven. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 27. It says, only let your manner of, of life be worthy of the gospel. You might have a footnote that tells you that literally means behave as citizens. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Same word. So our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, behave as citizens of heaven. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. We are foreigners in this land we should live like where we're from. There's a family in, in, in Durant, Mississippi. Uh, Durant, Kosciuszko, they were from India. Sweet family. We befriended them. We, we shared the gospel with them. We had dinner at their house, and it was amazing to me. I never got over the fact of just how much they lived like they were from India. In their house, they, they never spoke English, except we were there. They ate only food from their country. They dressed like they were from India. They would drive all the way to Jackson, sometimes even to Houston, to get the food that they ate. They were aliens here. And they kept their hooks in their homeland. They behaved as if they were citizens from another country. You know why? Because they were. Check your ID. Where's your citizenship? Earth or heaven? You cannot have both. Dual citizenship is not allowed. You cannot serve God and mammon. God is a jealous God. You are either his or you are your own. And so behave as citizens of heaven. Now I want us to contrast these two citizenships because they are polar opposites. And I want to do that looking at these negative earthly examples Paul gives here, every one of them, and I want to springboard out to their opposite from citizens of earth to citizens of heaven. Number one, citizens of earth are enemies of the cross. Look at what he says, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul weeps. He weeps over these many enemies of the cross. You see how he says that? He says many. 
whom I have often told you. And now I tell you, even with, with tears, it should really say weep. I tell you, even weeping. I'm, I'm sobbing aloud as I write this to you about these many enemies of the cross that I've told you about so often. He's sobbing. Imagine that. Why? Why such anguish in heart? One reason is because an enemy of the cross is an enemy of the gospel. The cross is the emblem of Christianity. It's the emblem of the gospel. So an enemy of the cross is an enemy of the gospel. Believe me, citizens of earth hate the cross of Christ. It is an offense to them, and they will not come to Christ. And this burdened Paul as it should us. And i got four categories here where we see this enmity with the cross. One is religionist. Religionists are enemies of the cross. He calls them dogs. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. These are the Judaizers, the legalists, the religionists, the dogs, he says. These, these people were just like him. And they dogged him. They, they were a thorn, a constant thorn in his flesh, always coming in behind him, trying to plant ungospel seeds of legalism, always adding to faith alone in Christ alone, always diminishing the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ by overemphasizing works and religion and self-righteousness. The same thing goes on today. Man, right now, all over this country, People are preaching everything under the sun except Christ crucified. They're preaching morality, which Bible version you got to have, dress codes, do this, do that. They're railing against the evil culture, everything but the glory of Christ. So why is Paul weeping so hard over this? Because these were his brothers. He had unceasing anguish in his heart for the kinsmen of his flesh. That's what he says in Romans 9. And because those who he weeped for were also bewitching his converts. The whole letter to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? These legalists. He travailed against enemies of the cross. Antinomians are enemies of the cross. The very opposite of the legalists, the ones who love the grace of God, only to cover it up with sin. Paul says, no. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul wept over this same licentiousness in Corinth. With much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears over Carnal Christianity, so-called. A false gospel. A plague on our own land now. An enemy of the cross. Pagans. Pagans are enemies of the cross. So if it wasn't pain in the synagogue and in the church, it was anguish trying to evangelize a lost world. Jesus had personally called him 
to walk in the midst of an idolatrous pagan nations all over the world. He said, you need to go and you need to open their eyes. You need to open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light and escape the power of Satan and turn to God. Okay, no problem. That's easy. Until you have to walk in the middle of it. And then you're overwhelmed with the absolute impossibility of it. Overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of souls that are perishing without the gospel. Tony and I felt this in China. Man, row after row after row of 30-story apartment buildings everywhere you look, everywhere you drive, just endless darkness and captivity and eternal ruin. We got seven days in Thailand, and man, everywhere you look, there's a temple, an idol, an offering to some false god, everywhere, on every corner. Where do you start? Paul felt this when he walked into Athens. He says his spirit was provoked. His spirit was provoked when he saw the city was full of idols, enemies of the cross. But I think the worst thing was apostasy, apostates, or the enemies of the cross. This is my best guess of what provoked these tears the most. Those he had loved and had invested so much into, and they just walked away from the faith. Just walked away. I have personally wept with my own names in mind, as I read his heartbreaking words in his last imprisonment in 2 Timothy, he says, Demas, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. His mind was set on earthly things. He became an enemy of the cross. Those who pretended so long to love Jesus could pretend no longer. Citizens of earth, all of us, are enemies of the cross. But brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven. We are not enemies of the cross. We are champions of the cross. That's what we do. We champion the cross. Those who have been saved by the cross of Christ champion the cross of Christ. This is what we do. Citizens of heaven are advancers of the gospel. We are advancers. We advance the gospel against the gates of hell. We advance the gospel against darkness. We are fishers of men. We go. We go. We advance and make disciples of all nations. And Paul is sitting in jail. And he says, I'm advancing the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brother. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So you're advancing the gospel. Huh. Sitting in prison. He says, yeah, I am this guard right here. And you know, it's not just Paul. It's not just for the Pauls of the world. 
It's for the regular old Philippians. It's for Lydia. It's for the jailer. It's for two, two ladies in chapter 4. And it's for Clement and uh, Epaphroditus. And he tells us all, let your manner of life, chapter 1, verse 27, be worthy of the gospel. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are, get this, that you are, that you, not just me, Paul, but you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened by anything from your opponents. This is what we do. This is what we do individually, but not apart from the church collectively. One mind, one spirit, side by side, me and you, arms locked, advancing the gospel, striving for the faith of the gospel. We are advancers of the gospel, and we are defenders of the gospel. He's in prison for defending the gospel. He says in verse 7, my imprisonment and defense of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They attacked Paul for preaching the truth. They lied about Paul. They lied about the gospel. The Jews were accusing him of twisting the scriptures, but he defended the gospel from the scriptures. And it led his whole long chain in Acts chapter 20 through 26 where he's defending the gospel. He defended the gospel before the Roman tribune in Jerusalem, before the Jewish council, before Governor Felix, Governor Festus, King Agrippa, now he's in prison in Rome before Caesar's household, defending the gospel. This was his habit in the synagogue, defending the gospel, in the streets, defending the gospel. We do the same thing. If you love truth, you defend truth. We defend the gospel before a, before a vicious world who hates it. Before a Christian culture, generations deep in a watered-down gospel and, and just addicted, captivated by this false prosperity message. We defend and labor for the gospel. That's what we do. We're laborers. Citizens of heaven are laborers for the gospel. Paul's a slave. Tim, he's a servant. Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier and a fellow worker. These women labored side by side with him in the gospel. They were true companions, or literally it meant true yoke fellows. We attached a yoke together. We advanced the gospel. We labored for the truth. And that's what we do. We are yoked together, laboring for the gospel. Some go down, down in the well and some hold the rope. Some go and some send. And that's the last point here is that we are patrons. Citizens of heaven are patrons of the gospel as well. The whole reason Paul is writing this letter is in response to the financial support. The financial support he had received from the Philippians. The Philippians were... Great patrons of the gospel. Look at what he says in chapter 1. He thanks God for them because of their partnership. Their partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. Look at chapter 4. 
verse 14. He thanks them for sharing with him. And, he's, and he reminds them that you were the very first ones when, when no other church had entered partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And he goes on to say that not that I seek the gift, but that I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. They were patrons of his ministry. They sponsored the gospel. This is what we do as a church. I could spend a whole sermon on that, but these are the ways that we champion the gospel. Second point about citizens of earth. They serve their belly. Citizens of earth serve their belly. And this is just a few other little descriptions of this big category, enemies of the cross. Look at what it says. Verse, it says, enemies of the cross. Verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. What this means is they are self-centered. Citizens of earth are self-centered. What an amazing statement to describe that. That God is their belly. Is there any, can you think of any more, a more, any more profound description of self-centeredness, of narcissism like we see everywhere today? That God is their belly. One commentator pointed me to this. I didn't even know this fact, but this myth mythological creature called the Cyclops, he sacrificed not to the gods, but only to himself. This is what he said. He said, my flocks which I sacrifice to no one but myself and not to the gods, and this to my belly, the greatest of all gods. He considered it foolish to sacrifice and to serve to another god. So does the world. Great sign of unbelief Paul talks about in the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Hey, resurrection is not true. Guess what? Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Everything for yourself, everything for your appetite, everything for your own comfort. Lovers of pleasure than, rather than lovers of God. Even inventing a religion that says, God's all about my prosperity. Citizens of earth serve themselves. What you worship, you will serve. This is what he means when he says, their God is their belly. They serve their God. They serve themselves. They serve their own belly. Whatever God you choose, him you must serve. Everything to do to serve me. Everywhere I go to serve me. Everybody I see to serve me. This even infects us. I go to church, the church is supposed to serve me. The consumer mentality, twisting the commandment to love one another said, love me. Citizens of earth sacrifice. They sacrifice for themselves. God, a God demands sacrifice. So what is it that you sacrifice? To who, for who do you sacrifice? The world sacrifices for themselves. Long hours at work, time away from family, 
church for what? For who? Is it for them? Is it for Christ? Is it for you? Where do you sacrifice your money? Where do you sacrifice your time? Is it for Christ? Or is it for you? Self-centeredness is an enemy of the cross. It's the opposite of Christ-likeness. Jesus served others, not himself. He sacrificed himself for others. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to sacrifice his life for men. Citizens of earth serve their belly, but we serve Christ. We serve Christ. We serve his interest, not our own. We serve Christ's interest, not our own. Look at what he is telling the Philippians in chapter 2. He tells them not to look to your own interest, but to the interest of others. There's the mark. Not looking only to your own interest, but those of your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, humble yourself. Lay down your own interest. Count others as more significant than you and serve them. In other words, stop serving yourself. And who's the example? Christ. That whole great passage we call the hymn of Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the one who humbled himself. Infinitely humbled himself. But look at chapter 2, verse 19. How he describes Timothy. He says, I hope to send Timothy. I have nobody like Timothy who will, look what he says, be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Not like the others. The others, they seek their own interests, not of those of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. First of all, wouldn't it be awesome of this to be written of you in Scripture? But, but next, I want you to see this interesting connection here. What is Timothy's genuine concern? He is genuinely concerned for their welfare. What about everybody else? Not so. They seek their own interests. Not of Jesus Christ. What are the interests of Jesus Christ then? The Philippians. He's connecting their welfare as the interest of Jesus Christ. And this is so true. The church. The body of Christ. The brothers and sisters of Christ. These are the interests of Jesus. We serve his interest, not our own. We serve his possession, not our own. And we do so sacrificially. Look, he says, citizens, uh, he talks about sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul is saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And what did Paul do? He suffered everything for the sake of the elect. He considered himself Literally a sacrifice. He said, I'm a drink offering. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. And at the very end of his life, in 2 Timothy, he said, and now's the time. I'm ready to be poured out 
as a drink offering. Imagine being in a dry desert and you got one cup of water. But instead of drinking it for yourself, you pour it out to God. You waste it for the Lord. You waste your life. What are we wasting our life on? And Paul tells us to look at other examples. Look, look at Epaphroditus. This is, I really want you to get this. In chapter 2, verse 25, he talks about this brother from Philippi named Epaphroditus. In verse 27, it says, he was ill and near to death. It says in verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life, and he says, honor such men. Honor such men. Wow, I want to be like that. You know, the world teaches us one way to honor men, and the Bible teaches us another way to honor men. Here it says, honor men who risk their life for the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to get too romantic in your imagery here. This is not Jim Elliot and, and, and the end of the spear being martyred in the jungle. This is not you going to, to, the, to the capital city of North Korea and preaching in the streets as a martyr. You know what he did? You know what Epaphroditus did? All he did was walk on foot for a thousand miles to minister to Paul. To honor such men. To do the work of Christ. It's a whole lot of work for Christ that deserves honor. And we serve him because he's our king, and we sacrifice for him because he's our God. Third point about the citizens of earth, they glory in sin. They glory in sin. Verse, chapter 3, verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. So the sinful things that should bring them the most shame are the very things that they boast about. How could somebody do that? It's easy if you don't call sin, sin. You've got to redefine it. And that's what citizens of earth do. They redefine Sin. In order to escape conviction and hang on to the sin we so dearly love, we've got to redefine it. We've got to water it down. We've got to call it something else. We've got to minimize it or compare it to others in lesser degree. And sometimes we just flat out call evil good and good evil. And the Bible says, woe to you. Woe to you who do that. This is how you get to the place of glorying in your shame. You redefine sin. And you boast. You boast about it. Citizens of earth boast about sin. If you, if you study Romans 1, you'll see this spiral down in depravity. This escalation of sin and sinfulness. It all starts with exchanging the glory of God for the creature. And God gives you up. And God gives you up. And he goes on to de describe this judgment of God as this spiraling escalation of sin that includes especially homosexuality as judgment from God that eventually leads to a celebration of sin. 
not shame, not trying to hide it, not just doing it, but now celebrating it, boasting in sin, glorying in shame. Isn't it interesting that gay parades are called pride? Citizens of earth boast in sin, and sin, my friend, is an enemy of the cross. This is why Jesus came and died. You know he appears in order to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. The reason he appeared was to destroy sin and the works of the devil. And sin is opposing God. How can we love the sin that nailed him to the cross? They glory in sin, but our citizenship is in heaven. We don't glory in sin, we glory in Christ. Our boast is in Christ. This phrase is used twice in chapter 1, verse 26, chapter 3, verse 3. We glory in Jesus Christ. We glory in Christ. And I want you to think of the word about glory, that word more like boasting. We boast in Christ. We don't boast in sin. Man, we hate sin. We boast in Jesus, our Savior. We don't boast in ourselves. We acknowledge our need for a Savior, and we boast in him. We despise sin. Citizens of heaven despise our sin, and we glory in Christ. Paul calls his former way of life rubbish, dung, in comparison to knowing Christ. He thought he was blameless, but now he sees himself as a chief of sinners, a blasphemer, a persecutor, that which he used to glory in. He calls others who practice the very same lifestyle dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. He hates what it was once his glory. He says there's nothing good that dwells in me, but all glory be to Christ who bore my sin and shame away. That's what he means here, that we boast in Christ. We despise our sin and we deny our righteousness and we boast in Christ. We deny our righteousness. Please deny your righteousness and boast in Jesus Christ. My favorite phrase in all the Bible for that thought is in verse 9. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own. I have no righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes only one way, Faith in Christ. Righteousness from God. Simply. Through faith. This is the epitome of the heart of the citizens of heaven. No righteousness of my own. Only Christ. My boast is in Christ. His confidence used to be in the flesh. It used to be in his works. It used to be the fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, but now, no more. His glory is in Christ. No confidence in the flesh at all. We sing that song, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And let our song forever be, my boast is in him. My boast is in him. Fourth. Description of the citizens of earth. They mind earthly things. 
they mind earthly things. Their end is destruction. The God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And they have minds set. Minds set on earthly things. Minds set. They're preoccupied. Predominantly occupied. Even obsessed with the things of this world. Citizens of earth are preoccupied with earthly things, earthly pursuits, the pursuit of everything under the sun except the things of the Lord, worldliness, the pursuit of fame and fortune and pleasure. And I think that sounds a little too abstract to convict us. How about this? The pursuit of name recognition and, and promotion and advancement in the sight of men. A pursuit of an annual uh, average income that could support 12 families in Jesus' day. The pursuit of comfort at all costs. What we call the American dream. What we've written in our declarations. The pursuit of happiness. And I praise God for this country. But be wary of this. Remember, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Citizens of heaven are preoccupied with this, and they are oblivious. They are oblivious of the realities of heaven. The song was saying, I, I, have, I have no taste for heaven's joys. That was so true of me. Oblivious of the glories of Jesus. Oblivious of the glories of eternity. eternity darkened in understanding. Eyes only insatiable for sin. Like Jesus said, people loving darkness rather than the light. We would rather die clinging to our sins than to come to Jesus. C.S. Lewis talks about these trinkets. Ever heard that quote? He says, it's not that our desires are too strong. He says our desires are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant little child who wants to keep on just making mud pies in the slums instead of going to the beach. This is what we do. I think C.S. Lewis stole that from John Bunyan. Pilgrim Progress, when, he, when they see this man with a muck rake, muck, you ever raked muck, mud and manure and straw, and he's sitting there raking the, the muck, just playing in the muck, while a celestial being is standing over him, offering him a crown, but he doesn't even look up, oblivious to the glories of the gospel. Worldliness is an enemy of the cross, but our citizenship is not here on earth. It's in heaven. And we mind heavenly things. Citizens of heaven mind heavenly things. This is the mindset that we see all throughout Scripture, especially from Paul. Minds set on not earthly things, but heavenly things. Minds not set on the things of man, but on the things of God. Not on the things below, but the things above. The things that are, not the things that are seen, but the things that are 
unseen. Not the things that are passing away, but the things that are eternal. You should hear text behind every one of those phrases. We seek what lies ahead. Citizens of heaven seek what lies ahead. This is what Paul says back to chapter 3. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. What's he talking about, Paul? I press on for the goal. What goal? Early retirement? Best life now? Utopia on earth? No, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Don't seek the things that are passing away. Seek the things the world in the world to come. The things that are forever. And Paul is saying this in the context of the resurrection. The very verse before that says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's obsessed with the resurrection. He groaned for it. I don't know how, much, how many times you wake up groaning for the redemption of our bodies. But this is what he saw. He saw what lies ahead. And he says, if you've been raised with Christ, you will seek the things above too. I love that mindset described, the same mindset described in Hebrews. Chapter 11 talks about, we don't have a city here. We're seeking a homeland. We're not seeking here. We're sojourners and exiles on this earth. We desire a better country. We desire a heavenly country. This is not our home. Here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. We seek the kingdom that is to come. We seek first the kingdom of God. We seek first the kingdom of God. Kingdom come, not kingdom now. The kingdom of Christ, not the kingdoms of men. Note that I said seek first the kingdom of God and did not say seek only the kingdom of God. I'm not saying join a monastery and sit around humming until Jesus comes back? I'm not saying ignore the matters of the present. Remember that flame? It's still hot. It's still bright. But the mindset is, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Paul didn't sit around, just sit around daydreaming about being with Christ, although he said that was far better. What did he say? Chapter 1, verse 24, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Whether Paul was making tents or preaching Christ, he was doing everything for the sake of the elect. In order to print, pr present everyone mature in Christ for the building of the body, the body, the church, the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. And store up treasures there. Store up treasures in heaven. And this is what it means. You probably heard that a thousand times. Store up treasures in heaven. What does that mean? It means to invest and labor in the kingdom of God. To build up the body of Christ. 
Bible teaches us that the world, the world's passing away. Don't invest here. Invest there. The world's passing away, but what's going to remain? The word of God, the people of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the surpassing worth. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The people of God that we help enter the kingdom of heaven. My joy and my crown, Paul says, to the Philippians. You're my treasure in heaven. And then he tells them about their investment in the gospel. It's accruing to your account, my friend. Last point. Citizens of earth, they await destruction. Verse 19, their end is destruction. You are either born in Adam or born again in Christ. And all in Adam die and all in Christ live. And citizens of earth, those who remain sons of Adam, await destruction. Not just annihilation, but everlasting destruction. Not just death and rest in peace, but the second death, the lake of fire. This active, everlasting torment to any and all who do not obey the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not obey Jesus, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. This Jesus that I am preaching to you here today will say to all the unregenerate sons of Adam, depart from me. I never knew you. You'll say, depart from me, you cursed. And, and go enter into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That message the world hates. Any outcome but that. But the problem is that's the truth. Their end is destruction. And they suppress the truth about it. The world suppresses the truth about their end. There's a thousand ways they do this. There's a thousand ways we suppress the truth about the end. There's a whole rest in peace. All is well with the departed. There's the me and God's got it all worked out. There's a live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. There's heavens full of dirt roads and rainbows, and we're all going to get there. And there's a hundred ways religion has invented to suppress this truth. There's reincarnation, there's nirvana, paradise and 70 virgins. We become one with the universe, little G-gods in our own planet. Or better yet, no worries, there's no God. No God. Suppressing the truth. But the truth is their end is destruction. And that destruction is going to be incredible. 
and that destruction is going to be at the hands of Jesus himself because citizens of earth are enemies of Jesus. They're enemies. You are an enemy of Christ if you do not come to him. Flip. This is the one time I want to ask you to flip out of Philippians and go to 2 Thessalonians. We heard from Dustin last week this picture in Psalm 2, this forecast of Christ coming not only in salvation for those who take refuge in him, but in judgment for those who don't. And here we see a Pauline version of that glimpse of the future in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, we're awaiting a Savior from heaven. They're not. This is what they're waiting for. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Jesus thought it was good news. It is for those who obey the gospel. For those that don't, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes that day to be glorified in his saints. And I can imagine the day. We, we, we see, I, I see clips every day now of, the cancel culture, just screaming their lungs out. Arrogant. Like the Psalm 73, tongues just strutting about the earth in arrogance. They'll be screaming on this day for the rocks to fall on them. And the people who just will not shut their mouth, every mouth will be shut on this day when they stand before the judgment seat of Almighty Christ. The one who subjects all things to himself by the same power that's going to raise us from the dead. Their end is destruction. Our end is Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await not a judge, not a king with a, a rod of iron. From heaven, we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Please note it does not say we wait to die and go to heaven. It doesn't say that. I'm not waiting to die to go to heaven. I'm waiting on Jesus. That's what the text says. We await a Savior. We don't wait for heaven. For heaven's sake. We want Jesus Christ. It's not that we're going to be in heaven. It's going to, that we're going to be with Christ. And that's far better. This is, this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. This is Paul's desire. This is, this is his desire. This is our desire, the desire for this prize, this upward call. We await Christ. The world is awaiting destruction. We are awaiting Christ. And that is beyond comparison. It's matchless. It's your next word. You're filling in the blanks. Citizens of heaven await a matchless end. 
matchless, beyond comparison, without comparison, far better than anything we can imagine. Paul says far better. To be with Christ is far better. That literally means mucho, super, very much far better. You didn't know that means Greek, did you? What's far better? To, to depart and be in heaven? No, to depart and be with Christ. Mucho, great, very, very better. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Glory beyond all comparison. Like a candle to the sun. Beyond all comparison. Our end, my br brothers and sisters, is a glorious end. And that's what we're waiting for. We await a glorious end. It says the Lord Jesus is going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. While the citizens of earth forever suffer the wrath of the Lamb, we're going to be like him. We're going to reign with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth with a glorious new body just like his. This is the resurrection. This is the hope by which we were saved. This is what we groan for. This is what he preached. This is what he wrote about. This is what we hope for. To be glorified with Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Becoming like him. By any means possible. That's what I'm shooting for. To be raised from the dead. And to be like Christ. To obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And John says when we see him. We're going to be like him. We're going to be like him. Our glorious end. There's actually really no end at all. Our end is a never-ending end. Never-ending end. Eternal life. Pleasures forevermore, the psalmist says. This is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. This is the free gift of God. Eternal life. Eternal life with Jesus. Like Jesus forever. This is what we're waiting for. Now, this is my closing statement. Like a closing address to the citizens of heaven and the citizens of earth. This, hear, this is my hear ye, hear ye moment. What shall we say to these things? I say, choose this day whom you will serve. You can't serve both. Choose this day whom you will serve. In the presence of God, and Christ, who will come and soon judge the earth, choose this day whom you will serve. To the citizens of earth that are in this room right now, to you who have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, 
to you who have not pledged your allegiance to Jesus Christ. I want you to be warned and be wise. Remember that last week? Be warned and be wise. The Lord looks on the heart. Jesus himself knows what's in every man. And guess what he says? Your God is your belly. Your glory is your shame and your end is destruction. You think the way is right, but it's just death. Your way is wrong. Your mind is preoccupied with vain and trivial earthly things while the glory of heaven shines all around you. Like a moth to that little flame. And your end is destruction. You boast in sin and shame and you don't even realize that you are a slave to it. You must obey the gospel today. Wait no longer. This is the end of the matter. Why will you die? Why will you die? There is mercy and grace and forgiveness and eternal life at the cross of Christ. Please be reconciled to God. Repent and believe the gospel. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to the citizens of heaven that are in this room, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Behave as citizens of heaven. The world needs this. Man, right now, the world needs this. The world needs more citizens of heaven behaving like citizens of heaven. We need light in this world. Not all the other things that we dream of. We need light in this world. You are the light. Go and boldly proclaim and reflect the glory of the one who called you out of darkness. Walk and talk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of your king. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Choose this day whom you will serve. If Baal is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow him. Let's pray. Father, if it were not for these things written down, we would never believe it. We could never believe it. Without your spirit, Lord Jesus, opening the eyes of our hearts like you did Lydia thousands of years ago, we could never receive it. But we praise your name that you have rescued us from this earth and you have made us citizens of your kingdom. And we worship your king. Help us to worship your king. It's only by and in his name that we even call upon you now. Thank you for Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all.
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we all say, Amen. Amen. Jesus.